Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. I really just have one point today, and that point is sort of hyped up with some adjectives. And so let me just give you that one point before I read the text. And then we're going to look at some obstacles to, to living out this point, and we're going to try and apply it in some way. But here's just the one point. If you're a note taker, you, you just got to write this down, and you'll probably be free for the rest of the service just to enjoy. So this is just one point. I think this, one, this passage is about this one thing, and it is this, that the Christian life is one of humble, honest, dependent faith in Jesus. I know that's a lot of adjectives, but, but they all have a purpose. The Christian life is one of humble honest, dependent faith in Jesus. And so if you didn't get a chance to read the text before this Sunday, let me just give you sort of a summary of it and then read it, just to sort of orient your, your, your heart and your mind to, to be able to focus better. We, we just read a couple Sundays ago where Robert preached so wonderfully on the transfiguration of Jesus, where Jesus has uh, now starting to be more specific about who he is. His disciple Peter has confessed him as Lord. And so now the transition happens in the Gospel of Mark where, where Jesus is being more specific about not just doing miracles and casting out demons, as glorious as that is, but now teaching much more specifically about what his mission is to be the king who lays down his life on the cross and all those that follow him must follow him to also lay down their lives on their own cross to die for Jesus so that he, we might be resurrected by him. And so then he goes up to this mountain. Again, if you missed Robert's message two weeks ago, I encourage you to pick up a CD or listen to it online about Jesus who is transfigured in his glory before his three disciples. And then this week we're going to look at this section of, of, of Mark chapter 9 that happens immediately following Jesus, Peter, James, and John coming down from this glorious experience on the mountain only to find the remaining disciples arguing with some scribes who were religious leaders about the disciples' inability to cast out a demon from a boy who was brought to the disciples by this father. And this father was looking for Jesus, but he wasn't there. And so he was transferring his expectations about this boy getting healed from Jesus to his disciples. And the disciples couldn't do it. And so now they're arguing. Now it's like a case study. There's a real life over here. There's a boy possessed by a demon. And they're having a theoretical argument about why they can or cannot do it. Jesus comes down from the mountain after this glorious experience only to be slapped in the face again by the incompetence of his followers. And then there's this beautiful exchange between Jesus and this father whose faith is not perfect by any means, but whose faith is honest and humble and dependent. And so let me pray and let's read. Father, as we come now to your word, I, I pray, Lord, that you would help us. Help me communicate these truths well, and I pray that I would not obscure the truth, that I would um, decrease and that you would increase, and that you would stir the hearts of 
Christians in this room, that you would encourage us, those of us that are weak and wounded, feeble and fragile in our faith. And then, Lord, I pray also that you would show yourself to people that came into this room not yet trusting in Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would give them ears to hear and eyes to see and a new heart, a resurrected heart, so that they can finally breathe faith in Jesus. Lord, I pray that you do these things for the good of your people and for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's read, starting in Mark chapter 9, verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, again, this is coming down off of the glorious experience of the mountain the transfiguration of Jesus. So they is Peter, James, and John, along obviously with Jesus. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out. And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So what are we to learn from this? So let's just kind of again summarize this. Jesus is coming down from the glorious experience of the transfiguration and he descends into an argument between the scribes and his remaining disciples. It just jumps out to me. I, that, that, you know, the Christian life is not 
to be lived solely on mountaintop experiences. You know, you, you have to come down from the hill. You have to, like eventually you can't play that song that just gets you going all day long. Or you can't, you have to actually come down into the, to the muck and the mire of life. E- even Jesus comes down from the mountain and is, is there in the middle of a dispute between these, these disciples and the scribes. And he sees this father who, who has brought his son to the disciples looking for Jesus. Jesus is not there. The father, well, Jesus isn't here, so maybe his disciples will be able to do something. I mean, remember, they did do this very same work back in Mark chapter 6 when Jesus first sent out his disciples on their first missionary journey without him. It says that they actually cast out demons and healed the sick. So they've done this type of thing before once, but they're, for some reason, not able to do it now. And then he engages this father who, who is honest with Jesus. Like he's, he's real with Jesus. And he, he confesses that, that he has a little bit of faith, but he needs some help with his unbelief. And rather than sending the guy back until he gets enough faith, Jesus accepts this man's imperfect faith and heals this boy. And he exercises this demon. And then this boy, the situation actually appears to get worse before it gets better. And then Jesus picks this boy up from this sort of stupor or coma that he was in after the demon left him. So what are we to make of this? I think the point of this passage, as I mentioned, is that the Christian life is one of humble, honest, dependent faith in Jesus. We see, I want you to see sort of this contrast between the disciples who seem to be overly confident in their ability to do what Jesus has commanded them to do, and then this father who actually seems to not have much confidence, certainly in himself and whether or not Jesus can do what he's asking him to do. And so we've got these disciples who evidently went out on some mission without Jesus in a, in a sort of prayerless, overconfident sort of way. And then this father who comes to Jesus kind of doubting whether or not Jesus can do this, but, but coming to him nonetheless. And the Christian life, the point of this passage again is the Christian life is one of humble, honest, and dependent faith in Jesus. But there's more to it than that. I want us to, to see that it's a specific faith in the power of Jesus over evil, sin, and death. To be a Christian is not just to have sort of a general faith in God. It's to have a, a, a specific faith in Jesus who is God revealed in the flesh, who lived the life that we could not live, and then laid down his life on the cross to bear the punishment that should have been ours and then rose again in victory over the cross. A lot of times you'll hear, especially in America, you'll hear a sort of nebulous... In fact, we hear this a lot with professional athletes who the moment that they pray after a game or the moment that they sort of utter some semi-Christian phrase, we prop them up as an example of what it means to be a Christian. And a lot of times what you... And I'm not speaking about anybody specifically, so if you're a Tim Tebow fan, don't email me. I I love Tim Tebow. I'm not speaking about Tim Tebow. I'm not talking about Tim Tebow, okay? Can we get that out of the way? But, But generally, if any celebrity, whether it's at the Emmys or after a football game, just generally utters a sort of general 
ambiguous, vanilla faith in God, we act like that's enough. But friends, that's not what Christianity, that's not what the God of the Bible is. That's not what faith in Jesus is. It's a specific faith, not just in a nebulous Western view of morality and God, but in a God who has revealed himself in the person and work and life and death and resurrection of Jesus, who has conquered sin and has defeated it on the cross and in his resurrection. See, see the world, in fact, much of American Christianity can confess a sort of vanilla God, but the moment you start talking about Jesus and his life and death and resurrection and the holiness that he demands from his people, people back away from that. And so this honest, humble, dependent faith is not just a general faith in God, it's a faith in the God of the Bible who declares himself in the person of Jesus. And notice also that this humble, honest, dependent faith in Jesus, Jesus is drawn to honesty and an admission of helplessness. No, notice this, this father's plea in, in verse, uh, what is, where is it? Verse, verse 22. It says, It has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But then this father says something, But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And you might expect it to see. And Jesus says, if I can, look here, Jack. Have you been tracking for the last eight chapters of this little thing we like to call the Gospel of Mark? What do you mean, if I can? Come back when you have enough faith. That's not what he says. He says, if I can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And then, then the father even gets, gets more sort of honest with him. He says, I believe, but help my unbelief. And Jesus does not slap him in the face for his lack of faith or dismiss him, only to come back at a later, later time. He's actually drawn towards this man's honesty and admission of helplessness. And, and I think that we are particularly like, prone to miss this because we are... We are such self-sufficient people that, that value the right answer. We, we, we live in a culture where there is so much pressure to get it right that I think it fights against our ability to be spiritually honest. And it works itself out in rooms like this all across, all across the church in America. There's this sort of unspoken pressure to act like you have it all together when you walk into a room. Well, listen, if you're feeling that pressure and you're looking at all the cute little people sitting around you and you're wondering whether or not, listen, I'm their pastor and they're jacked up. And guess what? <laughs> I, I'm jacked up too. I, I, am, I am the leader of the jacked up crew. Because I think, I honestly think, I'm the most complicated jacked up person in this room because I know myself the best. Right? That's why Paul could say that I am the cheapest of sinners. Because you, you get to know yourself the best, but, but there's this pressure. Like we have these little subcultures, right? When you go to the game, you've got to wear the right colors and know, know when to cheer. And when you walk into the corporate setting, you've got to know the lingo. You've got to kind of know how to comport yourself. You've got to know all the technical phrases. And we transfer that same sort of pressure, that social pressure, into a place like a church where it should be the place where we're most free to be honest. It reminded me, some of you military guys can, can, can identify with this, it reminded me of my freshman year at the military academy where you had those Saturday morning inspections, Sammy's is what they were called, I believe, 
You remember those? Jordan Sammy's Saturday morning inspection. And there was such pressure to have everything in its place that it actually worked against true preparation. Like, there, there's a way of living life where you're just trying to pass social inspection, where the exterior becomes so important that you actually, actually neglect the real issue of the heart. And, and I can remember being a freshman wanting to get everything kind of ready, but you would just short, you would just make the veneer, the outside layer of everything sort of pretty, but inside, underneath the bed, in the back of the sock drawer, it was just a wreck. You were just stuffing stuff in your trunk and just, whatever, just get it out of the sight. And I can remember when I was a freshman, uh, uh, knocked on the door, it was a general that was the commandant of cadets. He was a Medal of Honor winner. He was a huge, tall guy with a Medal of Honor wearing it. St- st- knocked on the door, and he opened up my door, inspected my room, and he started to open up the drawers where I had stuffed all of my, you know, things that you couldn't see. Well, let's just say it didn't go well for me that day. <laughs> I can remember I was so nervous that my lip was shaking. I was so nervous. The only other time I've been that nervous to where it actually, one of my face muscles twitched was when I asked for my wife's hand in marriage for my father-in-law, and I was so nervous that I remember my lip was quivering, and I thought, gosh, get yourself together. But do you see what's happening here is that Jesus is drawn? He's drawn to this rawness. Like, here's my, I was thinking about this. Do you realize that eight years ago, we started this church in April of 2005. This is our eight-year anniversary next Sunday. Next Sunday is our eight-year anniversary. I'm celebrating our eight-year anniversary by not being here next Sunday. (laughs) That's how important it is to me. I'm sorry. But here's something that I've noticed in my heart and maybe in yours too, that when we started this church and there was 20 or 30 of us, you know, it was raw and rugged. And, you know, I can remember a time when it just seemed like Paul's guitar strings would break all the time. Your guitar strings never break anymore. I don't know what, do you change them? Maybe you're not as strong as you used to. I don't know. Um, And, you know, I, I was a little less polished and God, whatever. But it's like as we've grown, as things become bigger, it, like it works against sometimes your ability to be raw and rugged and real. And now it's not 20 of us in a room just trying to make much of Jesus. It's several hundred of us in a room, and we don't know everybody. And everybody's kind of trying. There's a little pressure. You know, we've got to get this right. We've got to keep this thing going. We've got to pay the bills. We've got, we got to have people coming. We need, you know, we need good ministry. We need people to like the songs. We've we got, we got to appease these folks that like these. And we've got to do this. And you've got to have points. Like, you know, all this kind of stuff. And what it can do is you can spend your life preparing for social inspection, trying to have the right confession, the right outward appearance, all the while missing what Jesus is trying to call out of you, which is this rugged, raw, honest helplessness. Jesus, I need you. Like, I can't do this. I can't do this. And everything in American culture works against that type of admission of weakness. Do do we realize that? And his father throws it, just lays it all out there. The Christian life is one of humble, honest, dependent faith in Jesus. And trusting in Jesus is to have a faith that is not to have complete certainty. It's to have a faith that is not 
the absence of doubt. Rather, it's to have a faith that follows Jesus despite uncertainty and doubt and feelings of inadequacy. So that's, that's the main point. The Christian life is one of humble, honest, dependent faith in Jesus. So now let's look at three obstacles, and then we're going to make some application, and then we'll receive the Lord's meal together. Some obstacles. These are not all of the obstacles, but these are things that I've been thinking about this week. Some obstacles to humble, honest, dependent faith in Jesus. The, the first is that I, I think that there's two sides of self-centeredness, one that we see in the disciples and one that the Father avoids here. There's two sides of self-centeredness that work against our ability to be honest and dependent and humble in our faith before Jesus. The one is that I think we, we can read into this text that seems to be the case of, of the disciples, this prayerlessness, this self-centeredness. It doesn't say at the beginning of the passage that they didn't pray before they were trying to cast out this, this uh, demon from this boy. But I think we can infer that at the end of the passage because Jesus sort of subtly slips in there. They ask him in verse 28, you know, kind of like the after action report, like, hey, Jesus, um, boy, that was awkward. <laughs> um, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus just sort of very simply says, well, boys, you know, <laughs> you got to pray for that one. And so there's this sort of self-centeredness. And I think it's, it's like you become a Christian and you, you sort of know generally your way around the Bible. And, and you, you've been doing this for a while now. And somewhere along the way, subconsciously, you just kind of put it in autopilot, Right? I mean, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to depend on myself and reject dependence on God. Nobody consciously wakes up in the morning and says that, but it's a sort of subconscious creep towards self-centeredness that happens in the Christian life. And I think we see the, the fruit of that in this passage in the disciples' life. Where along the way does that happen? That we just sort of become uh, self-dependent and prayerless. I don't know how it happens exactly in each of our lives, but I think we're prone to it. And that's why we need each other all the more. That's why we need to gather with other Christians other than in this room to pray and to have that self-centeredness sort of called out of us. The, the other side of self-centeredness that the Father might have been prone to, but he actually avoided, is actually the opposite of pride. The pride of self-centeredness maybe that would cause us to be prayerless. The opposite side of that is a sort of self-absorption, like an obsessive humility that would prevent us from ever going to God. And I actually see this sometimes in myself, and I see this in people sometimes. It's, 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 it's another form of pride, whereas one person says, oh, I got this, I don't need to pray, I can just sort of forge my way through life. The other side of that is a sort of self-absorption of condemnation and guilt and feelings of unworthiness that would prevent us from ever actually going to Jesus and being real like this father was. And this father actually, he avoided that. I mean, he wasn't consumed with his lack of faith. He actually came to Jesus despite his lack of faith. You see those two, those two obstacles? A self-centeredness that, that manifests itself in pride the Christian life on autopilot, but then maybe a more a, a subtle version of self-centeredness that manifests itself in sort of self-obsession, kind of a woes me. Jesus could never 
love me. He would never listen to me. Both of them, at the root, is a sort of self-obsession. A second obstacle to humble, honest, dependent faith in Jesus that I think we, we see potentially in this text and that we see in American Christianity, even as some have tried to interpret this text, is the subtle danger of putting your faith in your faith. What, what do I mean by that? Look at verse 29 again, the last, the last verse of the passage that we read. Okay, so he has this little after-action report with his disciples. They kind of embarrassingly, with their tail between their legs, ask him, Jesus, what happened here? And Jesus said, listen, boys, this kind of demon or this kind of situation cannot be driven out or taken care of by anything but prayer. And I think this has caused some people to look at this verse and say, oh, well, we've just got to pray more. And what we need is special types of prayer. And we need more faith. And certainly that is a good thing for us to do. But if we don't understand that Jesus is calling us to dependence in Him, not just sort of standalone prayer, not to muster up something within us, we can run the risk of actually putting our faith in the strength of our faith rather than in Jesus. Does that make sense? It's kind of like that analogy that we've used here several times is that we're, we're saved not by the strength of our faith, but by the strength of the object of our faith, which is, which is Jesus. And I think many of our friends in the, in the more charismatic wing of the Christian church put such an emphasis on having faith, which I appreciate, that sometimes they, they unwittingly draw their attention away from the object of their faith, which is Jesus. And you can end up very unwittingly in all earnestness, having faith in your faith rather than in Jesus. And you say things like, God won't hear me unless I have a certain strength of faith. And the emphasis goes from Jesus and his power to the condition of your faith. A commentator that I read on this verse said that this would be akin to staring at a windshield rather than looking through it. To look at the road, right? So, we're, you know, the win- faith is just merely the portal through which we behold Jesus, who's the object of our faith. Who among us would get in our car and stare at our windshield? Actually, my wife does stare at my windshield because I have a crack all the way through it that's been in it for the last couple of years. And she says, Brad, when are you going to get that fixed? If this thing ever shatters, I feel like a piece of glass is going to come and right at my face. So maybe I, she does stare at my windshield, but I, I, you get my point, is that we look through the windshield to Jesus. And how many of us, if there's a little bit of mud on our windshield, or dirt, or pollen in our windshield, don't still get in the car and wipe it off a little bit and look. We're not saved by the cleanness of our windshield or the strength of our faith but by the object of our faith that we behold even dimly, which is Jesus. Beware of putting too much faith in your faith. Listen to these words from Charles Spurgeon. This quote from a little compilation of sermons he wrote. It's a little book called All of Grace. Listen to this in a sermon he preached about this very thing. He says, See then that the weakness of your faith will not destroy you. 
a trembling hand may receive a golden gift. The Lord's salvation can come to us though we have only faith as a grain of mustard seed. The power lies in the grace of God and not in your faith. Great messages can be sent along slender wires and the peace-giving witness of the Holy Spirit can reach the heart by means of a thread-like faith which seems almost unable to sustain its own weight. Think more of Him to whom you look than of the look itself. You must look away even from your own looking and see nothing but Jesus and the grace of God revealed in him. Friends, are you weak? Are you fragile? Are you busted up? Do you feel so weak that you can barely even look? You are in the exact place that Jesus wants to get you to look away from yourself and look to him. And the final obstacle towards humble, honest, dependent faith in Jesus is that we naturally prefer independence, don't we? Most of us in this room are Americans, not all of us. I think some of us are probably from other countries. And if you're not from America, you may actually have a bit of an advantage over us. Because we naturally prefer our independence. We are libertarians by nature. And I'm not talking about politically. I'm talking about how we... It's the air we breathe. And at its root it displays that we are prone to be glory thieves and we want to be independent because we want to take credit for where we are in life. These are obstacles to humble, honest, dependent faith in Jesus. Okay, concluding with a few applications. Maybe you're in this room and you are realizing that you're not trusting in Jesus. Maybe you consciously were aware of that when you came into this room, or maybe in the course of the last hour or so, it's become apparent to you. Well, first of all, even realizing that is a gift, that God, I believe, is giving you illumination to realize that you are not trusting in Him so that you can truly trust in Him. Do not buy into the false gospel that you need to gin up some strength in yourself. But fall back in this gracious word that you are saved by Jesus' life, not by yours. You're saved by Jesus' strength, not by the strength of your faith. And see, you, you may be waiting. In fact, the very thing that may be preventing you from coming to Jesus is you are trying to figure it all out philosophically in your mind. Do you realize that at its core, you are resting the weight of your movement towards Jesus on some philosophical, you know, hatch being buttoned down? I'm not saying that there's not arguments to be had and discussions to be philosophical things that we need to think about, but don't exalt that. Don't make that like the most powerful thing in the universe. Could it be that, that you have blind spots? And could it be that Jesus, in this, like this text says, is not waiting for his people to come to him with a perfect, figured out faith, but to just sort of trip up to him like this father did, saying, I believe, help my unbelief. As Spurgeon says, look, look away from yourself and look to Jesus. If you're not yet trusting in Jesus, and you even realize that, friends, I think that's evidence that God is giving you even thread-like faith to trust in Him. What do you do? Do you recite a prayer? 
you join this church, no, you turn away from yourself and you turn and trust towards Jesus. Another application. You're living as a Christian in this broken world and you're fighting sin. And you're really, if we could be honest, being busted up by your sin. And you're not sure whether or not you have the strength to fight this sin. And you're right, you don't. Young college guy, you don't, you do not. Young army soldier that's single, that's about to go into a dark place called an infantry or armor battalion, you don't have the strength to fight that sin on your own. You don't have it. And if you go in there, guns are blazing, thinking that you do, you're going to get chewed up and spit out. Maybe God is working in you an acquaintance with your own weakness so that you will finally look away from yourself and to him. So, so look away. Look to Jesus. Look to his perfect life. Look to his grace. Look to the Jesus that encounters this father and says, come to me. I can do it. All things are possible. All things are possible. And so how does that actually work itself out in your life? It's not just a sort of mental agreement with what I'm saying. Then it works yourself out by getting into community, by gathering other people around you, by confessing your sin to other Christians, by building in accountability networks in your life, by living life together with the body of Christ, the means of grace, by reading your Bible, by praying with brothers that will come alongside you, and by being honest about who you are and where you are so that Jesus, through the means of grace of his body and his word and his spirit can help you along the way so that you can fight that sin. Another application, your marriage is struggling and boy, it started well, but now you wonder whether or not you can actually get through the week without biting each other's head off. I think any of us that have been married for more than a year or two have probably felt that before. The first thing that you need to realize is that you're, you're not alone. It's not just you. There's a battle going on for your heart against your marriage. And that even if you're weak, you, you can go to Jesus. If you will humble yourself, husband, if you will humble yourself and ask for help and confess your sin, Wife, if you will humble yourself and confess your sin and if you will give your life and your marriage to Jesus. And that, again, isn't just some sort of mental assent. It's giving yourself to community and to people to come help you. And if you will put down your, your sword and if you will come to Jesus busted up and fragile and frail and wounded and weak, he will not cast you away. Come to Jesus with humble, honest, dependent, raw helplessness. And he says to this man and he says to us, I can do this. I can do this. One more Spurgeon quote. I don't have it written on the screen, but I read it. I read it earlier this morning when we were singing. Spurgeon says this, May I therefore urge upon any of you who have no good thing about them, 
who fear that they have not even a good feeling or anything whatever that can recommend them to God, to firmly believe that our gracious God is able and willing to take them without anything to recommend them and to forgive them spontaneously, not because they are good, but because He is good. Rugged faith, honest, humble, dependent faith comes to Jesus not because we are good, whether we've been Christians for 30 years or three weeks, but because He is good. Let's look to Jesus now and let our faith be stirred because with Him, all things are possible. Let's pray. Father, as we come now to prepare our hearts to feast on this meal. Would you help us look away from ourselves? We confess, I confess that we are self-consumed people. We are born by nature, not just sinners, but glory thieves. The world rotates around our belly button and we, although some of us can put on a a veneer, deep down inside we all fight this raging war within us of self-centeredness. For some of us, this self-centeredness has worked itself out into the Christian life on autopilot, a prayerlessness, subconscious overconfidence in ourselves. Lord, we confess that. And we come weak and wounded back to your grace. For some of us, our self-centeredness has worked itself out in a sort of self-absorption that makes us a sort of woe's me. Woe is me. I could never truly be changed by Jesus. And so we wallow in self-pity. <laughs> Strangely enough, I, I think I swing between both of those extremes, overconfidence and self-absorption and self-pity. Lord, for those of us that are there on that side of the ditch, would you lift our eyes from ourselves so that we would see Jesus And then would we do more than just place honest, raw, rugged, dependent faith in Jesus? Would then it it work itself out into our lives? Would we give ourselves over in humble confession of sin towards people that we trust? And would we open up our homes and our hearts? And would would we invite people into our lives to see the ruggedness and the the complication and the fragileness of our lives in our marriages and our parenting and our fight against sin. God, would you, would you maybe for the first time cause us to just be real with you and each other? And Lord, there's so many obstacles to that in a room this big with a crowd this size. But would you give us the kind grace to, in small little pockets all across this room, fight against that tendency we have to shell our... To, to just wall ourselves off from you and the body of Christ so that we can be honest 
and say with his father, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. We believe, help our unbelief. God, would you do that for me and these friends? I pray, Lord, that you do it for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.